This is James Fox, and you're listening to That UFO Podcast. I'd like to thank Paperlike for sponsoring this episode. Something that's always held me back from making more use of my Apple Pencil for notes is the feeling across the screen still felt like I'm writing on glass, especially when scribbling notes for podcast episodes. Paperlike have very much changed how I use my existing iPad and it's giving it a new lease of life. Paperlike is perfect for anyone who draws and writes using an iPad and an Apple Pencil. The surface of the Paperlike is coated using nanodots, tiny microbeads that are designed to add superior stroke precision when you drag the Apple Pencil across the screen. Every Paperlike comes in a set of two, so you'll always have a spare in case you need. I'm no artist either, but my kids certainly approve of using it to draw and doodle, and I can have peace of mind the screen underneath is completely protected. To pick up your Paperlike, head over to paperlike.com forward slash that UFO, click buy Paperlike and select your iPad size. From now until the end of January, Paperlike is also including their digital pro planner bundle at no extra cost, with every order placed through the Paperlike store. Plus, shipping is completely free. Ready to do more with your iPad? Then head over to paperlike.com forward slash that UFO to get started. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. For the final time this year that you'll hear from me in an interview form, I thought we'd look back at the year in review and there's no one better to do that with than my guest joining me. He is the editor-in-chief, creator, co-founder of The Debrief and host of the aptly named Micah Hanks Show. I'm joined by Micah Hanks. Micah, welcome back to the podcast. Andy, great to be here and season's greetings, my friend. Yes, and to you too. People will be listening to this uh, just the day before Christmas, Christmas Day, a few days after, and through the magic of time travel in the future as well. So hi to those in the future. Um, Micah, I've always said I've got a face for radio. You have a voice for it as well. What I want to do is look through the year in terms of UFOs, because a lot happened this year. Some of the stories I'm going to look at aren't necessarily directly related to UFOs, but... I'm looking at 12 articles, 11 of them written by yourself on the Fantastic Debrief website. The links to the debrief is going to be in the show description. I cite it often enough. I talk about it often enough. People will not be surprised. It's one of my go-to resources for any UFO news. To pick up on a quick point, I mentioned to you this to you before we started recording, and you thought it was worth bringing up as well. For anyone who looks at the UFO topic and can say on a, a month-to-month basis, not much is happening, that's just not true, is it? It's not true at all. And in fact, you know, I I like to do what I call internet archaeology, where I'll find archived pages, thanks to the fine folks at Wayback Machine and Internet Archive, one of my favorite websites. There has been so much information put out about the UAP subject. And of course, back before they were known as UAPs, they were known as UFOs. And a lot of that information is no longer available online. But, you know, one thing that you can find via Wayback Machine is an archived page on UFOs that was once featured at the Department of Defense website. And on that page, it had said, as you may know, the department no longer looks at this issue. And then they kind of summarized the findings of Project Blue Book. But I bring that up here to mention the fact that uh, at the time that that statement was on their page on the website, ALSAP was running out of the DIA, which is a combat support agency within the DOD. And it's not so much that things aren't happening, but often the case is that when things are happening, the public doesn't have a full awareness of it. That program was running behind the scenes while on the front face, the DOD was still saying, we don't have any involvement investigation or an investigation of UAP. Nowadays, we have a whole lot more uh, accountability. And there are a lot of people who have been and who remain very suspicious about that. You know, they're saying, 
we've got the all domain anomaly resolution office that's just opened up. And why all of a sudden is the government coming out and saying that they're involved in these things? Why all of a sudden does the government want us to know that they're investigating UAP and they're, you know, naming the officials who are looking at it? When back years ago, it was all protected. Some of these things were special access programs. Some investigations may still be, we don't know. But now there's legislation that's trying to kind of limit how much uh, secrecy on this subject can continue and to try and move toward broader transparency. Again, I bring all that up to say that there's probably a whole lot more going on than people are aware of. But as journalists over at The Debrief, you know, myself, Tim McMillan, MJ Benias, Chris Plain, and Chrissy Newton, we are always trying to speak with officials, politicians, scientists, and other people who are involved in aspects of this that don't see the kind of reporting that we have seen maybe so much of since 2017. And although a few people have continued to say that, oh, things have really died down, nothing really to see here until this next report comes out, there's always something happening, whether or not it's sensational, whether or not it appears on the front page of the New York Times. So we continue to present that information and do so steadily over at The Debrief. And I'm very proud to be here with you today, Andy, and appreciate your reading of our website, because as you've noted, our team continues to cover this and we do it you know, very frequently uh, because there's always something bubbling, whether or not that's under the surface. Do you think that's a bit of a symptom of the digital age, the social media age, the fact that people refresh their news feeds now and expect the news now, they expect it five minutes ago, and if, if it's a story that's a day old, it's not worth noticing. So they're looking through and going, ah, nothing's happened this week. When Absolutely. in the past, you would have one case and you would hear about it for years, and it wasn't a newsletter or a, a quarter, an annual newsletter would come out and you would read about the UFO news for the year over a couple of pages. And I think now, again, we're looking back through the debrief website and researching. I've recorded numerous breakdowns this year, breaking news podcasts. I've recorded interviews all over the place. There's been books, documentaries, there's been cases, sightings. There's a plethora of information. And I just feel sometimes people don't realise and won't realise what we've got until in the fullness of time they can take a step back and look at the timeline of, say, 2017 to 2022 or 2023 and go, wow, look what happened in those five or six years. Absolutely. Yeah. First of all, people have been completely spoiled by how much information has been coming about uh, coming out about this in recent years. And as a result of that expectation of there always being something breaking and there being something revelatory or sensational, if it isn't a revelation, if it isn't sensational, if it has to do with policy, you know, draft language in a bill like for the forthcoming 2023 fiscal year National Defense Authorization Act or something like that, you know, if it's something that gets more into the minutiae, people do tend to kind of go, oh, okay, well, I'm not interested. Show me them aliens. Where are the bodies? Give us the wreckage. You know, this subject is far more nuanced than that. And back during the 1990s, even earlier than that, you know, much of this subject was kind of led by the more speculative side of things. People claiming to have had firsthand experiences not only with UAP, but also their occupants. People also claiming to have remembrance of seeing crashed discs and things, alleged U.S. military recover of these. Now, it's not to say that the military has not recovered exotic craft. I don't know if they have or have not. I have my suspicions that maybe there is more than the public knows, but a lot less than popular books from that era would have us believe. But where we're moving into this new era, in the 21st century, and especially since 2017, we are seeing more credible, uh, more responsible reporting on this. Yes, it involves far less sensational aspects of the phenomenon. You look at those military videos, you look at the accounts by witnesses, they're still describing pretty remarkable things, but I would stop short of calling them extraordinary because really 
we seem to almost be closing in on understanding some of the technologies that UAP appear to represent. We are beginning to understand better ways, you know, methods of detecting them, both by the U.S. military, but also scientific organizations. And as we come closer to really credibly studying this and evaluating what it may mean, I get it. A lot of people are losing interest. A lot of the old guard are saying, well, this isn't interesting. We already figured all this stuff out decades ago. But in truth, we didn't. This is a new era. And often science goes through this kind of, there was the mythology beforehand. And then there are the observations of aspects of that phenomena that we begin to realize, okay, there is something here, but there's been a whole narrative built around that, which may not be accurate. Let's just whittle that down to its finest essence and see what we're really dealing with. We're at that point right now. And although that may be a little uh, tedious and granular for a lot of folks to have to try and wade through with all the language in the bills, the scientific papers published by organizations like the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies, of which I'm actually a contributing member, you know, that may not appeal to the general public, but it's some of the most important work that's been done with this topic really ever, not just in this century, but ever before. It certainly is. And I think there's a good link in there. You're talking about the science and we're going to start in a place in January because that was the start of the year, folks. I've done my research uh, where science really came to the forefront. And it's not directly related to the UFO topic, but one day sooner than later, it very much could be. And the James Webb Telescope arrived at its orbital destination around one million miles away. Uh, that article was on the debrief website. The link will be in the description to the show. I want to ask, first off, Micah, the James Webb Telescope as a technological achievement, what are your thoughts? Well, it is one of the greatest astronomical achievements for a number of reasons. First and foremost, we have very limited ability with ground-based telescopes, uh, and really, in truth, even our past uh, space observatories, to view distant regions of space. The James Webb Space Telescope is unique for a few reasons. One, because it's further out. It's not a ground-based telescope, and therefore it can get past some of the atmospheric haze that Earth presents to ground-based uh, observatories. But it also is capable of perceiving outside of our visible range of the spectra. It can actually see into the infrared, which allows it to see regions of space and sometimes even through areas of space that past telescopes weren't able to see through. When we see the star stuff that Carl Sagan always talked about with regard to you know, the stellar gases and things like that that are part of the process of planetary and star formation, uh, those regions of space are difficult to see beyond. But when there are light sources beyond them that are obscured within the visible spectra, with infrared, we can sometimes see beyond that. And we can see re you know, literally you know, regions of space that were invisible to us before, thanks to the technology that Webb provides. It is, without question, the most advanced space observatory that has ever been put into orbit by humans. And so really, just to summarize right there, all those reasons to me make this the most promising astronomical endeavor that we have seen in recent years, maybe in several decades. Uh, short uh, behind it, I guess, you know, is very close, probably the Hubble Space Telescope. But again, with the combination of the data that we get from both of these observatories and also artificial intelligence that we're using to help process data more quickly, the efforts of astronomers, citizen scientists getting involved with the processing of this information. I have noticed since the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope being a space and science reporter there at the debrief, I've noticed an acceleration, a notable acceleration in the collection and processing of data this year alone. That, to me, really says something. And again, going forward, we're only going to get more of it. It's going to improve our knowledge of past studies, and it's going to help us probably find things not only in just the visible sense, but also in terms of collecting data uh, that 
will lead to realities we probably never would have guessed. And again, you know, this is something that many, including um, NASA Administrator Bill Nelson and others, have kind of echoed. We're probably going to go looking for the unknown, but we're going to find things we never even thought to look for, thanks to James Webb. What do you think it's going to show us and help us learn about our own place in the universe? Do you have any expectations in the short to long term, short to medium term even? Yeah, I do. We're already seeing the furthest out in space, some of the earliest galaxies in space. We're learning new things about those galaxies thanks to the information that Webb provides. I suspect that we're probably going to soon begin to close in on some of the questions like dark energy. You know, we're going to understand why there's this anomalous acceleration of the universe when the mass that exists in our universe shouldn't be uh, allowing for the rate of the expansion that actually occurs. And by a better capability of being able to observe the movement of the universe and the, the, the ongoing expansion and being able to measure those distances and to be able to understand the dynamics of how the universe works and the galaxies within it and being able to see further out and understand them better. I do think that some of these questions about the makeup and the physical material in our universe and some of those inconsistencies are definitely going to be unraveled in the years ahead. And I would guess maybe as close as the next five to 10 years. And as relates to the UFO subject, to bring it back, the obvious here and what people would hope or expect would be we pick up signs of life potentially in far off planets if we can identify them and start looking for those kind of biosignatures and atmospheres and whatnot maybe even massive objects orbiting other stars or planets those kind of articles pop up now and again don't they is there something around a huge star somewhere and that's causing a dimming of light there was something kind of crept up earlier this year and went away again is that science fiction or are we getting closer to science fact well, I like to say, Andy, that science fiction steadily over time becomes science fact. You look at, for instance, predictions that appeared first in science fiction like Arthur C. Clarke, the uh, creation of the telecommunications satellite. Uh, you know, in fact, Clarke had some really forward-thinking ideas about how commu- computers would be connected in the future. And essentially, he described decades before its arrival the World Wide Web. And to me, the kinds of things that we have long looked at as being science fiction maybe not all of them, but a lot of them with time are inevitably going to become science fact. The search for extraterrestrial life offers one of the most promising avenues in that regard. As you mentioned, the search for technosignatures, also biosignatures. I think that the difference there just being that uh, any kind of extraterrestrial life potentially may produce biosignatures that are detectable. But the fact that a advanced civilization somewhere in a distant region of space and they and and with their advancement, their technological capabilities, they're going to produce signatures that are detectable. This is one of the most promising areas because those involved in the search will actually argue, and some have in recent uh, published papers, that techno signatures are probably going to be more abundant in truth than the biosignatures, and they don't have to be beacons that are being shot off toward Earth. They don't have to be overt signals being broadcast toward us, so to speak. They could be things so simple as the street lights of large cities that eventually we may be able to detect thanks to technologies like those presented by James Webb. They may be climate change on a distant planet that we're able to detect as a result of changes in the atmosphere that we would recognize only with a planet whose atmosphere has undergone the kinds of changes that result from a you know large population and one that's producing technologies. So those kind of things, indeed, we are going to be more well-equipped to detect. But the question, of course, on many people's minds when it comes to the UAP question is, and I've often said this, it would be the height of irony 
with all respect to our SETI researchers, because this year I got to finally speak with Seth Shostak, uh, director of the SETI Institute. Uh, I've communicated with Jill Tarter, uh, a, a lot of other researchers involved in that effort and who have been pioneers. And so I have tremendous respect for the SETI efforts, the hunt for techno signatures and how this is developing. But wouldn't it be the height of irony if in all our searches for life out there, Andy, if we found evidence of intelligent life that was not from Earth right here in our backyard, maybe even within our atmosphere, that to me would be astonishing. But it's not impossible. It is indeed at least a possibility, however remote that may seem for some, when we look at the UAP question. And we have to acknowledge that possibility. Well, a guest contributor to the debrief in February uh, was Mr. Christopher Mellon, and he wrote an article, uh, Why is the Air Force AWOL on the UAP issue? I'd love to ask, how do you see Chris Mellon's role in the current landscape of UFOs? He very much seems to be someone whose work is being done, like you say, quietly in the background. Yeah, that's a good way to characterize it. And I'll just preface this by saying that uh, is the one of the original co-founders, of course, and really the creator in terms of how the site looks, what the general concept is, what the idea was going to be. Uh, the debrief has always kind of been my baby, but I can't wear all the hats all the time. And so when we launched, we kind of delegated the responsibilities. I was kind of happy to do a little of everything. Tim was managing the business side of things. MJ was our editor-in-chief at that time. Uh, as his schedule became more busy, I eventually took up the mantle and uh, continued the efforts of editorial as the new editor-in-chief of the website that I actually created, and uh, I've enjoyed that, although it's a whole lot of work. I say that here to point out that my first official job as editor-in-chief was working with Chris Mellon on that article, and that was quite a landmark entry into this uh, role that I've you know played with the company that uh, Tim and MJ and I have co-founded and continue with Chris Plain and Chrissy Newton. Uh, and it, it was a proud moment, too, because I have tremendous respect for Chris Mellon. Uh, although he's best known, of course, for his work and his appearance on Unidentified, the History Channel program, alongside Lou Elizondo, another guy who I have a lot of respect for. Uh, Chris has a tremendous background. He is, he is an intellectual. He is a person who understands policy. He is a person who has advised uh, officials from a position of national security working in government. And someone who, as he will tell you, he has looked as deep as he can. And he's tried to find evidence of any kind of special programs or any kind of information that the public doesn't generally have access to about UAP. And even he, from his perspective and positioning in government and past involvement, will tell you that there is a genuine mystery here and it's incumbent upon us to try and study this. And seeing guys who are career officials like him and Elizondo and others who I've spoken to, who have come out of government and they come into the civilian sector and become, they kind of take the role of activists so that they can point back at government and say, hey, look, we have questions. There has to be more data. And we realize that some of that can't be released, but there should be some that really is not so critical, so potentially damaging to national security that if it were discussed more broadly, that it would have long ranging negative uh, impacts on the United States and our way of life. That was the main focus of Chris's article there. He's trying to say, look, we have the United States Air Force. They are in charge of commanding the air, protecting our airspace. They have all of these tools at their disposal, which Chris eloquently goes through, I mean, admirably goes through and breaks down in that article. And he says, what kind of information are we collecting on this? And based on all of this data accessible to the Air Force, why is the Navy seemingly leading the charge in the current UAP debate? 
Now, I would say that the Air Force has always been involved, and I can't fault them for not publicly wanting to limit how much accountability, I guess, that they feel like they have to have because mm. for the longest period in history, the Air Force was in charge of a significant systematic scientific study of UAP that was known as Project Blue Book, and it had two predecessors, Project Grudge and Project Sign. Some have speculated that there were additional efforts that continued thereafter. And it is true, by the way, that the Air Force continued to investigate on a case-for-case basis when necessary some UAP incidents with or without any kind of formal program or reporting structure for that. Uh, That much has been released in uh, documents obtained via the Freedom of Information Act over the years by researchers like Barry Greenwood, Lawrence Fawcett, uh, and many others. But all that to say, the fact that they have been involved and have done so quietly and must obviously collect information on UAP with all these tools at their disposal doesn't help us in terms of bringing to light a broader understanding of the Air Force's role in this UAP question. And that aspect of public accountability uh, is exactly what Chris Mellon is arguing. And so again, working with him on that article, I mean, it was a uh, tour de force, I would say. And there were a lot of people behind the scenes who helped with that, some real, real researchers. Uh, And uh, that made my job a little easier as editor. But of course, it was also in in many ways even more uh, nerve wracking, I guess, thinking that the first article that's going to go out under my leadership in that department comes from a guy with the kind of history that uh, Mellon has. But the great uh, outcome was that that article was, of course, a hit as we expected it would be. I think Chris made some great uh, points. As he told me privately, he shook up some, you know, names up there in Washington who took the subject very seriously, and I think in a good way. Uh, Sometimes you need to generate that kind of interest, and he was able to do that. I'm just glad that the debrief, that our publication was able to be a vehicle for that message because the the tone, maybe you might even say the structure of that article, a lot of aspects of that were non-traditional, and that's something we pride ourselves in with the debrief as being a publication that will sometimes offer commentary that doesn't have to be chopped down to 800 words Right. And, and and the lead has to be rewritten. And then we got to assign a correspondent to help write it and everything and then put it through another round of editing. There was tremendous work that went into that, but it was my effort to try and make sure that Chris's fundamental message was not hacked away and whittled down, that the sum total of what he was trying to convey would, and I would say necessarily so, uh, had to be conveyed as it was. So anyway, it was a great opportunity. And again, I I'm, I keep in touch with Chris periodically as a result of that article we all do there at the debrief, and we appreciate his work. I'm going to be completely honest and admit that I do love a bit of cool technology, but not all the best tech is classified. So when Blendjet got in touch about their new Blendjet 2.0, I was very excited to try it out, especially as one of those protein shake people that many folks hate. Just shaking never has the same results as a blender does, let's be fair. Blendjet 2 is portable, so you can blend up a smoothie at work, a protein shake at the gym, or even a margarita on the beach. It's small enough to fit in a cup holder, but powerful enough to blast through tough ingredients like ice and frozen fruit with ease. Blendjet 2 is whisper quiet, so you can make your morning smoothie without waking up the whole house, a big one for me folks, and it lasts for 15 or more blends, and recharges quickly via USB-C. Best of all, Blendjet 2 cleans itself, just blend with water. Water, a drop of soap and you're good to go. With over 30 colours available, there is something for everyone. Personally, I'm a huge fan of the carbon fibre. What are you waiting for? Go to blendjet.com and grab yours today. And be sure to use the promo 
code THATUFO12 to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. No other portable blender on the market comes close to the quality, power and innovation of the Blended Jet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. Blend anytime, anywhere with the Blendjet 2 Portable Blender. Go to blendjet.com and use the code THATUFO12 to get 12% off, remember folks, and that free two-day shipping. Shop today and get the best deal ever. There was a fascinating breakdown of that technology the Air Force could potentially call on. Very cleverly done. He wasn't saying, well, this is what they've got and this is what they could have in terms of UAP data. But he just called out, here are some of the known systems and how they work and how it could potentially be used. And no doubt that comes from that place of understanding and knowledge and maybe some of the things he's seen himself that he can't talk about openly. However, you're right when you say that here we are and Chris shook up some people in the background. But 10 months down the line, have you heard of any change of stance from the US Air Force on this? Because on the surface, it doesn't seem like anything has changed. Yeah, on the surface, no. But fortunately, there actually have been some pretty notable um, indications that the Air Force is back in the game. As a matter of fact, the very day after we published that article uh, by Chris Mellon, uh, Robert Powell, who is one of the co-founders of and an executive board member of the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies, he put together a quick op-ed that we also published where he uh, mentioned the fact that he'd spoken to an Air Force serviceman who said, we recently received a briefing where like back in the old days, they called us in and they said, you know, we're changing our reporting structure. This is what we expect people to report. Uh, You're not going to be penalized or made fun of. If you say that you've seen things, we want to make sure that we're collecting data. And that much was also echoed, of course, in the 2021 ODNI report, which we'll get to here in a moment. But uh, they list the agencies that were providing data to the UAP task force. And of course, the U.S. Air Force is one of those. They also mention, and this had already been uh, made public prior to that report, but after the Navy updated its reporting procedures, which I think occurred in late 2019, they were a little slower to act, but the Air Force followed suit and did the same thing. And so they have both updated the way that they obtain information and the expectations of servicemen and women who are having experiences with, again, what have now been re-termed, and we should definitely get into this a little later, not just UAP unidentified aerial phenomena, but now unidentified anomalous phenomena. Mm. So yeah, they're, they're definitely making an effort, the Air Force that is, to sort of match what the Navy has done in the past. And keep in mind, officials I've spoken with, when you reference the Navy's UAP task force, have said, you know, we don't like when you call it that because it's always been a, you know, a a multiple agency effort. And even though it's housed, right, it was the, the UAP task force fell under the cognizance of the Department of the Navy. There were multiple agencies that were contributing data that was intelligently being reviewed by that task force. And now, of course, the DOD's own uh, all domain anomaly resolution office further expands that effort, having now inherited the uh, job of the UAP task force. That transition has now occurred as we just got a briefing on Friday about that. So last Friday, that is. So again, you know, now as that effort continues under a different organization within the DOD, uh, we see an even further expansion, I think. And let's not just say that this has always been the Navy. The Air Force has always had some sort of participation, even if they are not as public about it as the Navy has been in the past. I'll just quote the end of the article and then call back to it later on with you, like we say, are we reaching the limit of the questions we are brave enough to ask or data we are brave enough to pursue? If so, will that also limit our further progress as a nation? From that perspective, the UAP issue is a serious test of our intellectual integrity and courage, perhaps even the ultimate test 
Although it's a stern test, I believe our civilian policymakers have the courage and integrity needed to rise to the challenge. That's one we'll come back to in the coming months. So we move on to March and the heavily redacted version of June 2021's task force report was released. Credit to John Greenwald of the Black Vault for for the diligent work in getting that out there. Uh, So after a successful FOIA of the report, John Greenwald obtained a version 17 pages long, the original being nine pages. What do you make first off of the back and forth we saw online on the length of these reports? Some people said it was several hundred pages. I don't know anywhere near the level of governmental work that you will, or people like John Greenwald and the work they do. Is it fair to say, though, that there may have been versions of this report far, far, far longer than you would even see released? And that includes official versions that you just can't FOIA and you don't get access to. Yes and no. I think that the classified version of the report that John Greenwald received was the classified version of the intelligence assessment as it was completed and delivered to Congress. However, I don't doubt that there probably were lengthier files, manuscripts, uh, collections of documents, things along those lines involving intelligence reports, perhaps histories, uh, and other kinds of data that may, you know, again, would, would probably have constituted much lengthier collections in their sum total. That information, no doubt, classified, uh, even if not all of it is classified, I would argue that probably much of it is not. And if having gone through the proper clearing processes, it would probably qualify for review just like the classified report did. But what I view that classified report as, as representing is the uh, summary of all that data, right? And that may have, this is all speculation on my part, Andy, but I mean, that may have led to some of the confusion where uh, people have been speculating or had perhaps heard through various channels that there was a much lengthier report. Yes, we'd heard, I think, a number around like 75 pages. Even John Greenwald, who obtained that report through, I believe it was a mandatory declassification review that he actually used to obtain it, which is slightly different from the FOIA, but very similar in nature to that process. We can get into that if you like. But uh, the uh, the classified version of that report, when he, when he received word initially, before he actually got the document, but they responded to the request so that we are going to release it to you, there are an additional few pages. I think it was like 16 versus the nine-page report that we originally got, uh, the unclassified public version that appeared on the ODNI website. And John responded to that and said, wow, that's not much more than the one that you know we all saw. And yet... Even though a lot of people said this is a nothing burger, this new pay, you know, paper shows us very little, there's so much redacted that we can't glean anything, I beg to differ. I think John would agree, by the way, and kudos to him for getting that report out. I had him on an episode of the Micah Hanks program to discuss this at length, and yes, we did a feature there on it at the debrief because I thought this was significant. So a few things that we learned from the classified version of the report were, first of all, for some reason, every mention of a term that the Navy uses for these interruptions that occur where UAP appear during uh, planned training missions, the terminology they use is range fowler. That was entirely removed from the public version of the report. But once John went through this mandatory declassification review process, and briefly on that point, all that really is is where you go to an agency and you say, this version of the report was not released to me through a FOIA. And so I am requesting that you go through a review of the data and of course, this has to be undertaken by each of the individual agencies with the data that they provided to that report so that they can individually clear which aspects are are available for release. But that mandatory declassification review causes a complete review of the document where they can go through and they can find aspects that may actually be releasable. 
with you know redactions and where those areas still fall under those uh, areas of the FOIA. Uh, and then that report may thereafter, following that review, be released. And that's how he was able to get that classified version of the report. But I'm kind of baffled that they removed every mention of Range Fowler when that entire portion of the of the the report that John got uh, was left intact. I mean, it seems to me that that never would have had to have been re- you know removed in the first place. And this is one of the main things I think that is important about the FOIA process. If citizens don't actively involve themselves, journalists like me and, and researchers like John Greenwald, although many would call him a journalist too, and he does occasionally write uh, original reporting that he features there at his website, The Black Vault. Uh, if researchers like us do not engage in the FOIA process and other available access to information processes that the government provides to us, state and local and federal, uh, then we won't always get all the information that really in truth could potentially be available to us. Why there was an entire appendix about the FBI's involvement in supporting the UAP task force's efforts, why that was omitted from the public report seems strange to me. Uh, maybe it's not as strange, but I think still a little unusual that tables that show the general shapes that are reported with UAP, common shapes, that was completely redacted. I can kind of see why that would be removed. But again, John really went after that and has hoped to try and continue to push for the release of some of that information too. Uh, And then finally, there were summaries of individual incidents that occurred in the classified version of the report that were also completely removed from the version that we received. If you go on the ODNI website and read Preliminary Assessment Unidentified Aerial Phenomena from June 2021, you'll note that they all say that there was 144 incidents. Uh, Here are the general takeaways, but they don't describe any single incident, uh, well, maybe apart from a deflating balloon that they said that they ruled out of their data set. There's no single incident that's described in that report, and that wasn't the case in the classified version. There were only a few descriptions, maybe more really than we can see due to the redacted portions, but there was definitely a lot more discussed in that report. And so the big takeaways for me were that, indeed, the FBI is far more involved than the public was uh, allowed to, to understand. And so as a federal law enforcement agency, that in itself perhaps is significant. We have a general working idea of what the kinds of common shapes are of UAP. And even if we weren't shown those, we know that government officials have been given this information and presumably Congress has been briefed on that. We also know that these uh, incursions into military airspace have a name and they're commonly referred to as range fowlers and that these occur fairly frequently. And indeed, that there's been an analysis of a lot of individual incidents uh, where some of these unusual characteristics, you know, ability to remain aloft for long periods, seemingly irregardless of wind and other kinds of things that often are difficult to control uh, conventional aircraft within those uh, environments and conditions. These UAP seem to be able to do those things with little regard for those environmental problems that aviators face. So to me, there was quite a bit that we learned from that classified version of the report. But one of the biggest takeaways Never rely on government to give you that information in an unclassified version. Sometimes you got to push a little harder. So thanks to John Greenwald and many others who continue that process. Our team at the debrief does the same thing, going through FOIA and similar processes just to make sure that that information that the public can have access to will have access to. You've summarized that incredibly well. And I just want to mention the common shapes aspect. That was probably the biggest talking point I saw online. And I can understand why. Just to get your quick opinion, what do you think was behind that? And why do you think there was such a heavy redaction? For those that haven't seen it or maybe newer to the topic, it was essentially a page that had common shapes of UAP and then a huge black rectangular box. Now, that may be the common shape of UAP. No one's ever discussed that. But I imagine that was blocking out the view of maybe 5, 10, 15, or 20 
drawings, sketches, or actual stills or photographs of of UAP that have been encountered? What do you think was behind her? Well, one reason why they may have redacted all of those could have had to do with certain specific categories. And I'll give you an example. If, let's say, they were images, either actual still photographs or perhaps these were uh, drawings, but nonetheless, they depicted something that the United States government doesn't recognize. But let's say it's actually a foreign surveillance platform. Let's say that this is a drone in use by China or some other kind of technology. We don't recognize it. We call it UAP because we haven't positively identified it. But let's say it appears in that unclassified, or rather that declassified version of the classified report, and then the Chinese government sees their drones or whatever in that, and they say, oh, how did they get that? They're not supposed to be able to see that. They're detecting us. They know we're here. And if we can detect it, then we must have a way that we do that, and that gives China in this case, or whomever, an idea of how we are detecting their technology. In other words, there there are reasons why even the images uh, related to the shape of certain UAP that have been encountered might be redacted. Now, does that mean that all of them should be redacted? We've already seen plenty of data about the shape that some of these things have, most notably the famous Tic Tac from the 2004 Nimitz incident. Uh, We already have some data, so why not just go ahead and release what data can be released to the public? Here again, I worry that there are very uh, logical down-to-earth reasons why certain UAP shapes and other aspects, you know, typology, uh, appearance, whatever, behavior, certain aspects of that side of the discussion should be withheld for national security reasons. But I doubt that that would apply to all UAP, all shapes, and that some of that information, much like some of the information that was seemingly inconsequential, uh, that should have been released the first time around, but was completely removed from the public version of the report. And then after that review is just handed away to us, we get all this additional data that says to me it should have been available to us the first time around. Probably some of those shapes and other aspects of UAP appearance is something that the public could know, but they have kind of done a broad sweeping redaction of that uh, based on a few outliers that probably are things we don't want our enemies to know about. That's completely fair. Uh, let's move on to April. And April, there was. Uh, we're going to move away from the US. You wrote an article about the special session that was on the cards for June uh, in Brazil. Uh, Brazil threw its hat into the ring for political awareness and acknowledgement of the UFO issue. Following on from the US lead, Brazilian senators called for a special session to be held later in the year in June 2022. But we can talk about this as a whole now. Um, First off, I've got to say, much of that would not have been possible without the efforts of researcher AJ Javard, who sadly passed away only a few weeks ago after a sudden illness. Um, He was due to be on the podcast with me days before and days and weeks after that. And I'm very sorry that interview never got to happen. It was lovely to see speak to in the short conversations I had. And I know you you got to meet him personally as well, AJ. Uh, uh, Micah, sorry, what was what was AJ like when you got to meet him? Well, he was wonderful. He was one of the kindest guys uh, that I met, not only in Brazil, but really anywhere. Uh, he was a true friend of the UFO community. Uh, AJ was very kind to me uh, when I was in Curitiba earlier this year. I hadn't known that he was holding his International Brazilian UFO Congress that very weekend in the very town I was staying in. And he invited me to come be a guest. And uh, I got to meet him for the first time there, but then we went out a couple of times thereafter and spoke at length and just, you know, became very fast friends. He was supposed to also be at the International UFO Congress here in the United States back in October that I attended as a speaker. And I was very sad to hear that his health had begun to decline at that point and sent him a message. We had a wonderful final exchange. Um, 
And on Thanksgiving Day of this year, I saw he was participating in a live stream. He had been hospitalized for a time before that, and I'd really hoped his health was improving. But unfortunately, things went downhill again thereafter, and uh, I learned very sadly about his passing. But uh, AJ was a true friend and uh, somebody that will not only be missed by guys like you and I, you know, people who knew him, uh, but really by this community because there were no Brazilian researchers that did quite like or or achieve the volume of research that AJ did. But there are some promising Brazilian researchers out there, Roni Vernet and others, who I have no doubt will follow in his footsteps and who will continue that effort. Brazil has a long history with this topic as this story about the Brazilian Senate uh, helps to showcase. Yeah, that special session was one of AJ's legacies. You know, that that did happen largely in Portuguese. Uh, a few managed to translate large portions of that online at the time. Uh, we've yet to see any further action really from this, given shortly afterwards, Brazilian elections took over. And that was largely the, the kind of focus in the country going forward. At the time, journalist you mentioned, Ronnie Vernet, who was very good in helping me set things up with AJ and also he's been on the podcast before and will be again next year. He said most senators are, are sceptical about this and they're relying heavily on documents and facts from the United States. Any idea since what the possibilities may be in this picking back up? Have you got any wind that we're going to see real action off the back of that special session? I don't. And honestly, I do feel like uh, the efforts of that uh, special session, you know, again, that was really spearheaded by A.J. Givard. As he explained to me, uh, Senator Eduardo Giraud had uh, come to him and had uh, expressed some interest in holding a special session. Uh, Giraud is, of course, very sympathetic to the UAP discussion. And although it's obviously been influenced by the developments happening in the, in the United States, I mean, there's a much deeper history going back into Brazilian uh, history, especially with with its Air Force, and dating back to the 1940s and 50s, they've had the same sorts of uh, interactions with this phenomenon that we have here stateside. And I think that although they were inspired somewhat by what's been happening in the United States, they wanted to hold this session, Girard, uh, and of course, uh, Wilson Pickler uh, was another former congressman who was involved with this, AJ, Roni, and others. They wanted to help uh, show the world, but especially Brazilians, that you know we have a long history with this subject. It's not just the United States. I haven't seen any additional movement with that, uh, but I do hope that in the years ahead, as the, we continue to learn more here in the United States and other world governments continue to explore this topic and what it means, that the United States won't be the only players in that in that way, uh, and that other countries that are able to become publicly involved, like Brazil, have made efforts to do and have continued to try and do. I hope we will continue to see more of that because I often say this is only a culture-bound phenomenon that English-speaking countries in the Western world experience, if that's what you think, if that's what you believe. But when you look at the data, and again, those who believe that haven't looked at that data, if you look at the data constituting the UAP issue, its history, and the worldly nature of this phenomenon, every government, every country has experienced this. This is not something that only United States citizens have experienced, that United States military encounter. This is a worldly phenomenon. We need to treat it as such. And around the world, I think the relationship other cultures have with the phenomena is vastly different. You know, there, there are other cultures that embrace it far, far more. And that's why maybe they don't have, feel the need to pull out cell phones and film flying saucers in the sky. You know, it's, it's seen as something that's far more natural and normal than it is paranormal or unnatural, uh, and those kind of <clears throat> documentaries and discussions are probably few and far between, which are always really quite disappointing. I know Lou Elizondo, when he left TTSA, was working on something um, regarding 
indigenous tribes and their their connection with the the phenomenon itself and that's probably something that's maybe got long gone on the back burner but maybe when Lou comes back into the public facing side of things we can ask him about that um the US did take the reins again on the UFO subject in quite a quite a big way in May 2022 where uh, congressional hearings were held it was the 17th of May Micah you wrote the article and you also live blogged it at the time as well um, I remember I've mentioned this was the same day that the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trials in full swing as well. So in my house, there was a competing uh, fight for the TVs. My wife won out and she got the comfy couch in the sitting room to watch Johnny Depp and Amber Heard battle it out for their riches. And I was resigned to the kitchen to watch uh, quite historic, but is it fair to say still relatively low-key hearings given what was actually discussed you know, live on on that YouTube channel? Well, certainly. You know, it, it was funny because initially we were going to take shifts with the debrief and I got so into the live blogging, I was going to take the first shift. Uh, and then you got to keep in mind, our team is spread out throughout different time zones. We have people on the West Coast of the United States, Tim McMillan's in Germany. I'm right here in the East Coast. It made the most sense for me to start. And by the time the public ver- uh, aspect of that hearing had concluded, I was still going. And, uh, and I remember Tim in the chat room saying to me, wow, Micah, the hearing's over. You just did the whole thing. <laughs> so, uh, And then we got a transcript up on the website shortly thereafter. Um, yes, that was a, a fairly peripheral view, I think, of the, of the subject. I mean, unfortunately, some of the, the most knowledgeable members of Congress that were sitting in that room asking questions of Ronald Moultrie and Scott Bray, uh, and I'll reference again, uh, 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 Mr. Gallagher, of course, who had said that he had only, I think, uh, spent about you know five or six hours, but he asked some questions that looked deeper into history than anybody else did. Uh, that seems to really kind of encapsulate the issue. I mean, he was asking some pretty pointed questions and some pretty specific questions about specific cases and admitted that he'd only done a few hours of research. And that's not to attack him. That's to say, it seemed evident to me that there was far less research done probably by other members of uh, Congress that were there present. And furthermore, uh, some of the uh, knowledge of the history of this phenomena, specifically related to nuclear sites and UAP incidents that have occurred there, uh, that information seemed to be outside the scope of the knowledge that Ronald Moultrie and Scott Bray possessed. You know, as they explained at that hearing, they were unfamiliar with some of these incidents that Gallagher had been asking about. So to me, those hearings were most important just because there was an open discussion uh, where with intelligence officials speaking to members of Congress in an open hearing that was televised, that, of course, to an extent constitutes appeasement of the public. We, the people, want this. We want to see our military, our intelligence officials, our elected officials engaging with one another in responsible dialogue about this. That was good, and that and that's the purpose that it served. But as far as there being depth to what's being covered there, yeah, there was a pretty shallow discussion, I would say. And uh, you know, I can't say that everybody's going to spend as much time, Andy, as you and I do reading about this stuff. You know, I spend most of my spare time studying the phenomenon, writing about the phenomenon, digging into the history, reviewing documents, historical resources. And, uh, and that's part of the effort of an organization I've recently actually joined, which has been spearheaded by David Marler, a dear friend of mine and a great researcher. It's called the National UFO Historical Re- uh, uh, Records Center. And you know, we, that's what we do is we try to collect and analyze historical information about this. With that effort, we hope to be able to provide better resources to those in government who, strangely, 
may have to rely on civilian data to get a more complete picture of this phenomena and what it represents, even though we recommend, of course, that they pay attention to that data that they're collecting, that the military has access to, that the rest of us here, you know, we the people don't get access to. Yeah, that's going to be very important, but don't forget about the civilian data. Uh, the, the congressional hearings showed me that although we are moving forward and having dialogue, a lot of this history needs to be better understood. And a comprehensive view of the phenomenon has to be attained, and that can only be done by combining that intelligence that's being gathered right now by our military with that historical data, a plethora of which is freely available to the public if they know where to look. Is there a danger people forget that these hearings are not the setting that we're going to see people coming out and saying, I am uh, Micah Hanks and I worked on a secret program where we reverse engineered the warp drive from a flying saucer we captured in 1947. That seems to be what some people think is going to happen in these settings. And, and it's not, is it? We're not going to hear that, especially in a public facing way. Do you think expectations need to be tempered as to what hearings like this and future hearings that we hopefully get are actually going to reveal, especially to the public? Oh, absolutely. I, you know, I've always said this to people, and this comes back around to one of the very early uh, points that you made. We have to remember that not all of the meaningful information, not all of the meaningful advancements in our knowledge uh, and our approaches towards studying UAP are going to be the things that reveal the kinds of speculations uh, that appeared in books about this decades ago, which still inform most of the kind of, I mean, and I, I mean this with no disrespect, but there are so many people out there who are very new to this subject and they get on Twitter and they, you know, start an account and they've read one or two books about Roswell after they read what appeared in the New York times in 2017 and being fairly new to this subject, they consider themselves experts. It's always those kind of people who I get those DMS from, you know, who do you work for the FBI, the CIA, you know, because you never talk about this, 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 and this. And it's like, the reason I don't talk about those things is because had you read enough about this subject, you would know that that's long been discredited. Unfortunately, a lot of this kind of low-hanging fruit leads still in aspects of the public dialogue about this. Uh, I can't blame intelligence officials for wanting to deal with the most recent data because one thing about that most recent data is that it is free of so much of that baggage sure. that decades of ufology has had, right? Uh, but that's also one of the reasons for the, again, shallow nature of this discussion. And so for for meaningful progress to be made, one has to be able to go through the historical data and separate the wheat from the chaff. And admittedly, that's a difficult thing to do. So, I mean, again, I mean no disrespect to people who simply have not had the time to read. I mean, I've spent decades reading about this, uh, reading most of the major literature from historians, from scientists, from researchers, also government documentation that's been released through the FOIA. It takes a tremendous amount of time to be able to get through all that information. And no single individual, certainly not me, possesses all of that knowledge. Uh, so although we have a fairly, fairly shallow discussion, like what we saw in May, you know, I understand the reasons for that. It's going to take years comprehensively to be able to go through all this data. And as Sean Kirkpatrick said during his first public appearance last Friday, where they held a media roundtable about the uh, all-domain anomaly resolution office and its efforts, he said that once – but he didn't want to really comment on the legislation before it passed. That's always the Pentagon's procedure. But he implied that once the fiscal year 2023 NDAA passes – with the language that does include a necessity for historical review of data going all the way back, I think, to 1945. He said that's going to be quite a research project. He's not kidding. Okay, that's going to be a whole lot of work. So again, 
we do need a more comprehensive look, but I do understand certain aspects that are influencing why there's so little being said by government officials right now. Yes, that is based on, in part, limitations on their own knowledge, but they're also trying to deal with the most relevant data that they have currently with the best technology that is reflective of how the phenomenon appears and how the military interacts with it currently. I get it. And you've cited the debrief you work in in silos, but you're a team, and that helps you put together the best end product. I think the the DoD has now had various different departments all working on this or collecting their own data, and if that could come together, that would be beneficial for the overall topic and reporting. In June, NASA finally announced plans to study the UAP topic. Many would, I like the old acronym, never a straight answer. Many would say from a conspiratorial <laughs> point of view, and probably quite fairly, you've got some moon uh, pictures in the background there and whatnot, that NASA probably knows a lot more about this than they let on. I've always caveated that with, the, the people probably have involved with NASA over the decades, but NASA is not a person. NASA is a big organization of offices and buildings and servers and and workers and people who go to their jobs 95, just like everyone else. I would say that the announcement was a welcome one. You mentioned Bill Nelson, the NASA administrator, who is uh, sympathetic to the UFO cause, given his previous political affiliations. He is someone who has been briefed some of these fantastic briefings we hear about. And uh, he has a real interest in in pursuing the UFO discussion. So he seemed to be a good guy to get in at the the helm of NASA. The study announced was a small budget, uh, very much. And if you read the article, it's not $100,000. It's up to, it's from tens to $100,000 is actually the quote from the article as well. So it may not even be as much as that. But it's a group that's being put together to look at how, from a scientific perspective, what can be studied and how is it best studied? Um, not many UFO folks involved in the study itself, which I think is a good thing. What's your take on NASA getting involved so publicly? And would you say that this is going to, again, be something that bears fruit past the initial study phase? Yes. So a few quick points on this. Obviously, NASA becoming involved has a lot to do with a couple of things. The public interest in UAP that's currently underway, and NASA announced uh, well, first of all, they put up a fact page about UAP the same afternoon, I believe, that the ODNI report dropped in 2021. Uh, so it is reflective of the public interest and also the renewed government interest in analyzing this phenomenon. But it also is reflective, I think, of NASA's leadership. And again, I got to commend Bill Nelson. That guy is not only just a powerhouse in terms of how he is uh, engaged with NASA and its mission, but he is someone who, rather than reflecting the kind of older ideas. You know, past leadership with NASA, there there have been documents and historical resources made available to the public over the years that show that past administrators of NASA have at times been not so much resist, resistant, I think, as they have been cautious about getting involved with the UAP subject directly. Sometimes their level of involvement seems to also be reflective of a lack of interest or knowledge in this subject. And Bill Nelson is not like that. He is somebody who has been very open. He has gone, I mean, pursues discussions with some of these Navy pilots and other personnel with our military who've had personal experiences. Uh, I would call him a man of the people. I, I'm a big fan of Bill Nelson, Bill, Nelson, Bill Nelson, if I can speak here. I'm a huge fan of big, uh, bah, let me try it again. I'm a huge fan of Bill Nelson. And uh, he is just somebody who uh, I think we need that kind of leadership, not just in NASA with our space program, but we need that uh, all across the board in government. Now, that said, those are the things I think that are driving a NASA investigation into this topic. A few 
points that should be raised about this. First, NASA says they're not going to be looking at classified data. They're not going to be looking at any kind of information that the public shouldn't have access to or know about. There aren't any UFO researchers who are involved. This is something that I think will be helpful, but I fear that on the other side of that, there are going to also be certain limitations that those who are not necessarily oriented toward the subject or have a past involvement with it, there are going to be limitations in terms of how much, because there's a lot of data, and this is the point I was making earlier, there's a lot of data to have to sift through, and especially if they're only going with that that's already available to the public, there's a tremendous amount. They've only got a few months, very limited funding. So I'm glad that there are certain scientific advisors, as I understand it, to this effort who are very knowledgeable on this subject. Some of these advisors are people I know from what I've heard. And uh, I think that it's going to be very helpful in, in directing those who are analyzing this information toward looking at the best and the most relevant data. Uh, that, uh, to me, indicates a lot of promise with NASA's study, because A, if they aren't looking at classified information, but they are you know, at least getting some assistance in terms of what data they are looking at, they're likely to do a comprehensive analysis of what I think would be some of the most reliable information we have at our disposal distill that down to its finest essence. And although it may not be different what they determine from what past civilian studies have resulted in, and you know, what determinations have been made by organizations like SCU, MUFON maybe, and others, what they will do is as a government agency with government funding and with the authoritative capacity that is imbued within a NASA or a, or a NSA or a Navy or an Air Force, you know, when you have a government agency that's going to produce this information, and with the kind of historical efforts toward transparency that NASA has always said that they champion. I know there are some who are more conspiratorial about that and don't believe that NASA is always as forthcoming as they say they try to be. But taking them for their word, they are committed to transparency and maybe more so than other branches of government. All those factors to me certainly lend to a degree of promise. And I have maybe not high hopes. I'm, it's always measured hopes when it comes to government, Andy. But I do have hopes that this report when they release this and they say the whole thing freely available to the public. And since there's no classified data going into it, nothing should be classified. We're going to get to read the full results of NASA's study. That's probably going to be a small chip away at the large block, but I hope it's a promising one. I hope it's something that encourages further study uh, where this to me could be very dangerous as if NASA looks at all this data and maybe they don't have access to all the best data because they weren't looking at classified information and they conclude, well, you know, we didn't find anything here, and we just don't really see any reason to continue scientific study of this. If that's what happens, there's historical precedent for what the outcome could be. We could look back to the 1960s with the Condon Committee, the University of Colorado UFO Project. That's what happened the last time a bunch of scientists got involved in study of UAP data and concluded there's nothing much to see here. You know, I mean, the media got out of the game, the military got out of the game, Project Blue Book literally was closed within a year. So I hope, with knowledge of that history, that NASA recognizes to a degree the responsibility they have in how they present their determinations and what they draw from the data that they observe, because that can have tremendous cultural and even political implications. Hi, everyone. If you listen to the podcast on an Apple device, you can support directly by going on to Apple Podcasts and clicking the subscribe button. And for less than the price of a coffee per month, you can get early access to episodes, episodes in full, and no adverts or sponsorships like this one you're hearing now. It also supports directly to me at the podcast, so thank you very much. Also, don't forget to go and leave the podcast on Apple a five-star review and make sure you click the follow button too. Thanks. 
let's open the door just for a moment to the speculation station here. Now, sure. if I was part of that team with any incline or interest in the UFO subject, and we're on a small budget, I would open up YouTube, I would type in NASA UFO, and I would see hundreds and thousands of videos of all sorts of stuff. Many of it, no doubt, ice crystals, particles, space debris, satellites flying by in the background. However, you can't deny there are some interesting bits of footage on there and stuff flies about. Now, if I can go and find some of the best ones, surely there is an archive with the extended footage in NASA and you just have to go down the hallway, open the door and say, I need STS whatever it was from this date, something flew by, you cut the feed off, was there anything here to see? And surely there would be some interesting footage just to look at before you even dive into any data. I would think so. I have had some limited correspondence with engineers and people who have had association with the space program over the years. They would not want their names uh, named publicly, but they've never ever conveyed any information to me that you know shouldn't be available to the public. In fact, all that is, for those who know where to look, and if not directly accessible, it should be accessible through FOIA. But that said, although I've never gotten any indication that people have said that there's a big smoking gun, there are from time to time objects of interest. And more often than not, these have already come to the attention of the public because of those sky watchers who you know have their webcams tuned on the space station, and they are able to observe those live feeds that are being produced by cameras uh, up there on our orbital uh, spacecraft. And uh, yeah, there have been some interesting videos that have emerged over the years. You know, one really quickly that comes to mind, everybody talks about the famous one. I think you were referencing the STS. What was it? Uh, I don't remember the exact name of the mission, but I mean, they, there's an object that's moving along. You see a flash of light and then something just shoots off in a, and in a changes direction. direction. As yeah. though like a missile had been fired at some sort of an object and it dodges. Yeah. Now, the conventional explanation for this is that this was one of the thrusters on the space station itself, or rather on the spacecraft. That was the uh, uh, that was not the uh, space station. But in this instance, that one of the thrusters actually fires, it causes the movement of a ice crystal. But there have been alternative interpretations of that video, too. I couldn't tell you what that one represents. Uh, it certainly was very controversial when it first aired. But the point being, videos like that have already been available to the public. And yeah, like you said, NASA should be able to go back and, and re-examine those and see if any of these actually do warrant further attention and alternative uh, interpretation. Now, there was one that, that aired a few years back where there was actually an official NASA spokesperson who talked about this. And it, it you know got a lot of media coverage. I even found the same video again uh, many years later. I'll have to see if I can dig that back up. But there appeared to be three objects that were moving uh, in formation that were, uh, I think in this instance, they actually were filmed from the space station. And is NASA, this the one of the horizon where you see stuff come over? It's, the, not, the shot is... it's not that one. No, this is something where there's a, the camera is pointed down toward the Earth and you just clearly see three small objects moving in formation and almost kind of turning as they're moving. A NASA official whose name slips my mind was asked about this uh, during a press conference and he said... We don't know what those objects are. They appear pretty frequently, but they don't seem to pose any kind of a threat. And so we're not, you know, very concerned about them. But he acknowledged, I mean, those things, whatever they are, show up all the time. Now, that could have meant ice crystals. That could have meant orbital debris from past space missions. Who knows? We always have to be very careful about allowing our minds to draw the dot or, or connect the dots, right? But to me, when I'm seeing those three objects moving in formation that appear to maintain a triangular shape, that's suggestive of there being some sort of continuity between their movement. And that much even seemed to be acknowledged in that brief clip that was televised years back. Now, again, 
those kinds of videos have been showing up for years. But like you say, to your point, Andy, NASA should be able to go back and look at all those things and say, within the context of what we now know, what the DOD's mission with Arrow is, what the UAP task force report from 2021 seemed to indicate, and with all the additional data that's being collected by space-based systems, some of which involving intelligence don't involve NASA, apart from NASA's role in helping get those satellites and systems into orbit for other agencies that use them, National Geospatial Intelligence, you know, Spacecom, what have you. With the data that's available to NASA, they should be able to conduct an independent review and look at that kind of data. That's stuff that they and their own systems have, connect, uh, have collected over the years. That, in addition to data apart from NASA's own systems, uh, would probably give a very comprehensive view of UAP, their char characteristics, dynamics, and, and would help those analysts involved with NASA's study determine whether or not there is a there there. I strongly suspect that there is. But again, it, it really relies on whether or not they are going to review that data. And when they finish this study, if we look at the data and we look at their conclusions and there's no mention of any of those videos, it's going to be rather strange to me. Uh, we're going to have to see maybe in the forthcoming report, not so much what they say, but what they have left out. I think that's going to say a whole lot about their analysis. Well, I've already been in touch with one of the people involved in the study, and they have agreed to come on once the study is complete. So hopefully oh. I can put that question to them as well. Very um, good. The, yeah, I, I spoke to Anthony LePay, who was a producer of the Unidentified series, back uh, for one of the first interviews on the podcast. And he mentioned that one of the things that didn't make it into season two that he wished had, but they didn't have enough that they could put out was, like you say, individuals from NASA who had been in touch with him. And that was something he wished he could have put into the show, but it just didn't fit. And again, maybe that's a shame we never saw a season three of Unidentified to see some of that material as well. And also to caveat, we're not saying that any of those objects are necessarily a non-human intelligence. The the US themselves may look at that and say, oh, that's something of ours. Yeah, you don't want to see any more of that. That's fine. Or it could be that foreign adversarial tech. But there are some interesting things that show up on that NASA footage. Um, the middle of the year, <clears throat> we get into July, August and September, and there's just a couple of things to touch on here before we ramp up. I think at this point, things did quiet down a little bit on the UFO front, UAP reporting front. That tended to me to be because we were ramping up towards the report that was due by October 31st. You mentioned Arrow several times, the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office. This was announced formally in July. We hear Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick had taken over, and we know that already his work is underway to get that report out that would be released surely by the 31st of October 2022. Um, what were your thoughts on the, the name change? At this point, we've had the UAP Task Force, the AYMSG. We now go to Arrow. Why all the changes? And is this deliberate obfuscation or is it just the way government works? I'm afraid it's just the way that government works. You know, UAP task force really made sense. That name, you know, establishing within the Navy a task force that looks at UAP, that was logical. Uh, but then we had the uh, AIMSOG, uh, as they called it. I mean, that was the most word salad I think I've ever seen in a mm. government organization and its name in general. The funny thing is, I guess it should have been expected. This is kind of tricky to, to figure out. If we go all the way back to OSAP, right? Advanced Aerospace Weapons Systems Application Program, headed by James Lukatsky out of the DIA. As we read in the book that you have on your shelf right there, I believe, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, uh, we we hear that there is... There was an effort, rather, and, and, and they were seeking the aid of uh, Senator Harry Reid at the time to try and get special access program status for that program 
And in order to do so, they had to have a uh, unclassified nickname for the program. And the unclassified nickname they came up, came up with for OSAP was ATIP. Uh, then ATIP, that name is borrowed thereafter for the informal Pentagon initiative that Lou El- Elizondo headed. Yeah. Out of which we uh, understand the UAP task force essentially grew because somewhat uh, out of the portfolio of the Pentagon's informal ATIP and some of the people who were involved with that, uh, we had the establishment of a UAP task force. But what's interesting about that, and I promise this is going to come back around to Arrow here in a moment and the reason for the name change, but I think it's important to understand the lineage leading up to that. Before the official establishment of the UAP task force, the UAP task force had been mentioned by name in a bill, language of which I guess went into the 2021 uh, National Defense Authorization Act, if memory serves. But uh, researcher Roger Glassell, before that, had also received in response to a statement, or, or rather in a statement that he received in response to queries to Susan Goff, the Pentagon spokesperson, uh, she had already conveyed to Glassell that there was a interagency task force that was looking at data related to UAP. That was the UAP task force. They were essentially doing that job long before Norquist at that time uh, came forward and said, you know, we've established this department. With the formal establishment of that department that evidently had already been referred to in bill language and had also been referred to a little bit more um, conventionally, I guess, you know, just using kind of general language by Susan Goff before that, we got a report. And we had out of that report uh, a memorandum that was uh, issued, I think, coinciding with the delivery of that report. Uh, and the memorandum said that the office, uh, well, well, that the DOD was going to formalize its reporting structure and the system and the and the organization and its structure in terms of how they were collecting this UAP data. They'd said all that at the time of the delivery of that report. That resulted in the establishment of the Airborne Object Identification Management and Synchronization Group, a.k.a. AIMSOG. But the problem with that, see, a lot of people looked at that and they said, you know, this is the DOD deliberately trying to undermine Congress, who is at this current moment outlining language for a more comprehensive office. Well, however that was viewed, and many people, including Lou Elizondo and others, came on the record and told me in our reporting for the debrief that they didn't think that you know, senators, especially New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, supported the DOD going ahead and establishing a office. I don't know that it was necessarily meant to undermine what Congress was calling for. Again, it was just kind of the ongoing delineation of what they were doing. We had OSAP. It had its you know secret unclassified name that was borrowed for an informal initiative, an informal initiative that obviously was referenced as a task force by Susan Goff, but then later actually officially named the UAP task force, but not before it was mentioned as such in a bill. And then at the time of the ODNI report by the UAP task force, they say that there's going to be a further formalization and continuation of the efforts under another name, which came out in Thanksgiving of last year, right? And then once a bill passes into law earlier this year, that being the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2022, Congress directed the DOD to do something slightly differently with that organization than what the DOD said they would do themselves. So I reached out to uh, Susan Goff about that. And she said, look, we didn't mention, she said, you'll, you'll note rather that uh, in the language that Congress passed, she said, the Pentagon's never going to comment on legislation before it passes. Once that passed, she said, you'll notice that the name of the office was removed from the version that went into law. And that's because essentially whatever we have, the DOD, 
we're going to abide by what Congress directs. And so AIMSOG, the DOD went ahead and they established AIMSOG, but then it was passed into law that there was supposed to be a more comprehensive program out of which Arrow is born. The, the main reason for renaming it is essentially, and this is my view, Andy, a acknowledgement of, okay, we're going to rename, rebrand our organization that we established back last Thanksgiving. Give it a new name that is somewhat more in keeping with what Congress is directing us to do with this organization, this agency. So that kind of keeps everybody happy, right? Uh, and we got the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, which is not dissimilar from the original proposed name that uh, the Gillibrand Amendment in that NDAA before it was passed into law actually entailed. Now, as far as what that name means, again, we've seen a lot of different uh, names for these programs. Hmm. Many of them at times don't seem to have as much to do directly with UAP, like OSAP, you know. But I think that with the Aldermain Anomaly Resolution Office, what we are seeing is an intentional, by virtue of the way it's worded, the name, an intentional effort to act, to acknowledge and further expand the scope of what kind of phenomena the DOD is studying there. Not just looking at aerial phenomena. This is an all-domain phenomena, not necessarily transmedium in the way that we see objects coming into and going out of water and things like this, although I suspect that there's data that does indicate that some of these objects do that. But we are looking at undersea, in the air, and in space. We're looking at all domains, wherever this anomalous phenomena that may have relevance to national security, wherever that occurs, wherever our military encounters that, we're going to be looking at all of it. And I think that that's where we are left with the Aero organization. The name is meant to reflect the intention of the mission and all the different domains that that mission will cover. Very well recapped as well. And I hate to do it at the service, but just in the name of uh, in time and getting on to, I think we found August, August and September, especially those of us on social media, noticed a lot of infighting and treading water as we await Arrow's report. Um, some of the articles worth checking out from that time was uh, Cosmics and Phantoms Above Ukraine. That was uh, a study that came out from Ukraine, which ultimately was by the Scientific Council shot down as being premature. Um, Avi Loeb was someone who came out against the, the data that was published as being not of the right quality to discuss in terms of UAP. It's fair to say there were definitely some interesting technologies and still are being deployed over the skies of Ukraine that, again, as we have discussed, adversarial technology will be abound in those areas. And then September, there was a paper suggesting perhaps we are hidden from ETs who technologically could find us due to micro uh, micro lensing signatures and micro lensing, which was really interesting as well. Micah, just because we've got a lot to cover still and the, the time we've got left, I'll just again point people to read those out. But I feel we move towards October and we're expecting this October report. This is where the rumour mill online went into overdrive. We heard about October surprises coming up. It may be used in elections, the, the UEP story. Um, ultimately, that never happened. We were expecting the report on the 31st of October. There were many, many countdowns for this. It came, it went. What was your view? Yeah, it it did come and go. And, and by the way, the October surprise, uh, that's in reference, of course, to an excellent article by my colleague Bryce Zabel, who wrote uh, some speculations about what could happen when that expected report, if it were delivered on that date of October 31st. That was when it was supposed to arrive. It didn't get here by that time, but had it arrived in time, Bryce's fundamental uh, speculation was, you know, what what might happen? What might be the result in terms of the U.S. election, considering that this report comes out on Halloween and days later, Americans go to the polls and we cast our votes in the midterm election? He wondered if that report could in any way be used 
as a point of influence on the election. And that's, you know, a perspective that is, you know, well worth consideration, but the report didn't arrive on time and none of us knew that that was going to be the case. In fact, based on the arrival on time of the previous report, many of us had probably been expecting that by October 31st, we'd be seeing something. So the date came and went, and it's kind of surprising that, I mean, now several weeks later, we're closing in on the end of 2022. We still haven't seen that report. And that, I think, is in large part the main reason for a media roundtable that the DOD held the other day with Ronald Moultrie and also director of Aero Sean Kirkpatrick, Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick, who is a career physicist and uh, analyst, I think a guy who is extremely well equipped for the mission that uh, Aero is currently carrying out. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the, the the public is wondering what the hell is up with this report. Why isn't it here? Why isn't why, you know why hasn't it been delivered? And the DOD wanted to, as an effort, essentially to kind of address that and to kind of uh, offer an appetizer, we'll say, whet the public's appetite a little bit in advance of the report. They say it's imminent, it's coming, we're going to see it probably before the end of the year. If they say that's the case, I don't doubt it. Uh, John Greenwald also, who has filed another mandatory declassification review with relation to that report, uh, trying to get any kind of information about it as early as he can, has also been informed that the report is, quote, with senior leadership. So I presume it's now in the hands of Congress. That much seemed to have been reflected by some of the language during the uh, media event the other day, which, by the way, I wasn't able to attend. Uh, In the rare instance where I tried to take a little bit of time off, I was traveling, attending a meeting uh, related to UAP with some colleagues of mine who are also involved in this subject uh, the very day that that happened. And there was very little about it said. Obviously, some of the press were invited. There were some members of the press who were reporting on it. I wasn't entirely uh, impressed with a lot of their questions. The questions mostly seemed to just, I mean, completely uh, focus on the number of reports that have been collected. Uh, everybody mm-hmm. wanted to know if there were more than 144 incidents, which is the number that was cited in the ODNI report. Had they paid attention during the congressional hearings back in May, they would have heard Scott Bray and Ronald Moultrie talking about more than 400 reports. We already know how many more reports. And Kirk Patrick said during the thing on Friday, there aren't a significant number greater than that 400 that Arrow is currently working with. But the press, of course, having not done their homework, I can't say that they ever really do with this subject. You know, they were just focusing on that and had very little to ask about the, you know, the the technologies that are being used to collect this data, what we're learning from the from the study of these phenomena, what the overarching narratives may be. Uh, you know, there were so many good questions that could have been asked that just we didn't see in that short little Uh, media event. But that was obviously aimed at trying to keep us happy until we get the report. And so really, apart from that, Andy, all we can say is the report's late, but the DOD is making an effort to try and acknowledge public interest in receiving it. Supposedly, we're going to see something by the end of the year. Maybe you and I'll have to do another show when it comes out. Who knows? (laughs) You never know. And listen, November came and went. We still awaited the report on a daily basis. Um, An article that was written at that time by yourself was about the Great Filter Theory. And this was a team at NASA's Jet Propulsion Labs in California putting forward the idea that there may well have been other civilizations out there in the cosmos cosmos over time but they destroy themselves before being able to communicate with us that was a wonderfully bleak picture to paint as we rolled on towards oblivion and the end of days which the the planet earth seems to be hurtling towards on a daily and weekly basis at the moment but again we've talked about so far just before we hit december the james webb going out there technological breakthroughs advancements you mentioned were potentially on the cusp of understanding some of this ufo technology for lack of using the uap term in a way we never have before and then you look at the idea that we're still at war with each other 
we're still spying on each other. The governments are still being deliberately obtuse when we're trying to get information from them in terms of the UFO subject. Have you seen this as being a positive year in terms of the UFO topic overall? Or do you still see it as we're we're really struggling to chip away at whatever it is it's being put up to deliberately block and make awkward and complicated any sort of information release? I think it has been a positive year. Uh, I'll just say this. I am not, I don't consider myself a conspiracy theorist. I also don't like when that term is used as a pejorative. And I think that it's been used as a pejorative, especially since the Kennedy assassination, which is an aspect of history that we don't have time to get into right now. There has been intentional use of that term, though, in a way that is, I think it's fair to say, this is a strong word, but it's fair to say that that term has been weaponized so that people who ask questions about potential ulterior motives involving certain historical events can be marginalized as being crackpots or crazy. And so I don't like using that term in that way. And when I say I am not a conspiracy theorist, I mean that to say that I'm not someone who appeals to conspiracy to get a point across. I try to take facts. I mean, as a journalist, I have to function this way. I have to go with what the data yields, which is exactly what Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick said during that uh, media event on Friday. I'm a physicist. I follow the scientific method and I have to go wherever that takes me. That process is not unlike what a journalist or a historical researcher does. You know, you follow the data. I'll also concede that there are real conspiracies, and to theorize about their existence is not necessarily unwarranted. There's plenty of historical precedent for that. I say all of that in order to preface what I'm about to say. We should always be critically minded, and we should always be cautious about government we should also be aware of the reasons for secrecy. And there's always going to be a certain degree of secrecy. There are always going to be secrets, necessary secrets, that are protecting national security and thereby our way of life, right? Here in the United States or in the United Kingdom or anywhere around the world. Well, in a free and open democratic society, at least. So understanding that there are going to have to be inevitable secrets, the posturing by the DOD, their position... The way that they've interacted with the media and with the public in 2022, from the congressional hearings to the passing of of legislation and the DOD's response to that and their efforts to communicate with Congress and with the people, uh, the media roundtable that they held on Friday, even though the report's late. Look, it may be a good thing that the report's late, right? If indeed they needed more time to comprehensively go over all the data. Sure. and, And if in the furtherance of getting a more complete honest and accurate analysis. They had to have more time, but then they hold a media roundtable to at least address this. These all may be positive things. And while a natural human tendency is to always be skeptical and to suspect that there's something else going on, many still lead with that presumption when it comes to UAP and the government's involvement. But everything I'm seeing, if we take it at face value, seems to indicate that there is an effort toward transparency. There is an effort toward resolving these issues. There are efforts to get more scientists involved, like what we see with NASA. And this is somewhat galvanizing citizen scientists, or rather I should say scientists outside of government, but also, you know, people like myself who are interested in scientific mysteries, but who want more accountability from government. These are all positive developments to me. And people who have over the last few months, Andy, been saying, ah, you know, things have gotten quiet. There isn't much going on. Arguably, 2022 has been one of the most significant years in the history of this phenomenon. And I'm hoping that this momentum continues on into 2023 and the years ahead. 
Well, we finish on December and it actually does give us a look at 2023. As you mentioned several times, the NDAA has passed and been signed into law. I believe that happened today. President Biden signed that off. Uh, The bill had been known for some time to be paving the way uh, in several ways, but mainly for whistleblowers to have a safer space to come forward and talk outside of their NDAs. Finishing the year off with this, could this be the story of 2023? Do you foresee whistleblowers coming forward either publicly or not and speaking to congress senate or a panel that's set up about some of these incredible things like i mentioned earlier retrieval programs being aware of these sorts of programs and whatnot if those programs exist and if by law members of government you know in various branches felt that by virtue of their oath by virtue of their role in government and their profession, that they could not come forward and talk about this. There are now potentially laws that will enable them to do so. And so if those programs have ever existed and there have been structures that prevented them from coming forward, those employees, and talking about that, that may no longer be the case. There may now be laws that will enable them to come forward and facilitate further discussion. And again, if that ends up proving, if it was a bit of a gambit, you know, we had to kind of play their bluff. We don't know what exists in government, but if there is something, you know, we're going to put our cards up on the table face up and we're going to say, you know, here's our hand, right? If indeed that's what Congress has just done, and if indeed they have now facilitated something that we didn't know whether it existed for sure, but we strongly speculated that it might have, this could, I mean, (laughs) I'm always careful about using the D word disclosure, but this might be what facilitates it. Right. I mean, no amount of citizen action, no amount of whistleblowing in years past ever was able to achieve it. But I mean, through legislation and through the the recreating or restructuring of government to facilitate the kind of transparency that would have um, been impossible in the past. Yeah, this could actually be a road toward a practical kind of disclosure, but we've got to wait and see. It also may lead to nothing. There may be no such programs. I kind of doubt that. Uh, These individuals may still not come forward for various reasons unknown to you and I. Uh, It it may take more than legislation by Congress to do that, but we'll see. And indeed, if 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 the language in the bill, I haven't looked at the final language that appeared in the NDAA, but if it hasn't changed from the last version that I looked at, I have a good idea of what it it entails. And it probably is going to entail exactly what we saw just a few uh, weeks ago. So if that's what passed into law, we probably have the clearest path forward, I'll say at least for right now, toward broader transparency on this issue that we have seen in years, decades in fact. I would encourage folks to check out D. Dean Johnson's blog, an article that he wrote on this today as well. He follows this incredibly well and is very well versed in what he's talking about and and breaks it down very clearly and succinctly as well. Um, Micah, one last thing I want to ask you. You've been great with your time for me again today. What are your hopes then for 2023 as pertains to the UFO topic? What, What could happen? What do you hope happens? Well, I've already outlined a little of what could happen with this legislation. And again, you know, we all probably have high hopes that there are going to be officials who come forward, you know, or people who have worked on programs and and who will now be encouraged to discuss what they know. There are always the perhaps unexpected consequences of sudden awareness by the public of seemingly impossible potentials. You know, one of the big takeaways for me this year and and truly a, a bucket list conversation was uh, getting to finally speak with Jacques Vallée. Uh, he's been a you know a, a guy whose work I have followed for years. I've had tremendous respect for him. Uh, and uh, our very own Chrissy Newton of The Debrief actually facilitated that conversation, put me in touch with Jacques, and it was wonderful to be able to speak with him. 
And one of the things I focused on, uh, apart from UAP and even his role in creation of the internet, was a talk he gave back in 2013 talking about impossible futures. And he says that throughout history, there have been many instances where people have been completely surprised by a technological development that would have been deemed impossible only a few years before it happened. And this has been the case in history of war and the history of Silicon Valley, an area where he's done a lot of work. UAP may represent one of those seemingly impossible futures that Valley talked about. Again, many people would have considered it crazy that there were unknown objects in our airspace that the military had been tracking and detecting and studying until what happened in 2017. And then it became suddenly this realization to much of the public, wow, there are things that we don't really know what they are, what their intentions may be, where they come from, and what that means in the broader scope of national security. But it goes so much further than that. I mean, it goes beyond to questions about our place in the universe, questions about spirituality. You know, there are a lot of questions. And so I hope that if indeed the kinds of things we were discussing in the last question with with regard to the uh, NDAA and what might result from the passage of this into legislation, while there's obviously positivity there, uh, I wonder sometimes if indeed the things that many of us suspect the UAP phenomena could represent, and that's still a could, we don't know for sure, but as we learn more about it, if indeed some of those speculations and some of those perspectives are confirmed, I mean, this could really radically change the way we look at the world and how our society is structured even. I mean, there are a lot of potentials. So I naturally hope that going forward, it will continue to be positive growth and that humanity can change and adapt and respond intelligently uh, and always with a degree of, I don't want to term this because this is a big subject. I hope that humanity can adapt and I hope that they can accept what the future might hold and that that will be positive. But much of that will have everything to do with how we interpret and respond to it. I think that the ball is in some ways in our court. And I hope that going forward, the more we learn about UAP, the more it will help us as humans grow, if that makes sense. And maybe we get to see that picture of the black triangle coming out of the water that everyone's been waiting on Tim McMillan uh, getting released now for some time. Well, I wouldn't hold my breath on that. You know, Tim and I, we've talked about that. I even... Uh, decided to try and pursue that one a little myself. I haven't written anything about that, but you know, and mm. Tim had just told me flatly he doesn't think that it's very likely that we'll ever see that. But then again, you never know. There there are times where uh, stranger things, I'll just say, have happened. Um, I won't I won't deny that I've been interested in the triangle thing for a long time. Uh, there are photographs that I think are very real, credible representations of those craft that do exist. I've interviewed countless witnesses who say that they've seen those things. Who knows, maybe that photo will finally be shown, but I think that, if anything, there may be better photographs out there that we just don't know about yet. Not yet. Well, Micah, on that note, thank you and to all of those who have contributed to the debrief over the course of this year. It's a huge source of information to myself and to many others. Also, to anyone who goes out their way to research, write or record their views on the UFO topic, no matter how small or large our audience is, a big thank you from me. Uh, it's, it's hugely appreciated. Um, have a great festive holiday period and a very happy new year when it comes to it. Thanks again, Micah. Thank you. And I hope that as 2023 continues, that UFO podcast continues to be that UFO podcast. It's a great resource. Everything you said about the debrief, we think the same about you, my friend, and please keep it up. It will at least be a UFO podcast. Thanks. It's a good one. <laughs>
that is all for this week's show thank you very much for listening please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform you can like retweet and subscribe that would all be very much appreciated the shows are being uploaded onto youtube as we speak more and more you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that ufo podcast to access shows ad free as well please get in touch on twitter facebook instagram that ufo podcast of course on twitter it's at ufo uapam and again folks as always keep looking up you never know what you might see it wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer more like a hubcap designed by chaucer a little baroque and quite steampunk like alice was playing bass for the parliament of the little fucker hovered right outside of my window and when i shoved out the screen he made it an issue i don't think he expected me to see his ass but i'd had some champagne and smoked a little meditative game of dateful on meta i can't imagine how it could have been any better i got to the top of the stairs and there he was like you awake i was about to abduct you cuz the window after the elf and I woke up in my bed and there was something on my head and everything was weird and everything was red and I called up my boys they thought this was noise they thought it was a dream they thought it was my toys they thought it was my problems and they think I should take care of me and I don't know what it is because it doesn't really scare me Thank you.